Section 5 of the Book of Sir Marco Polo the Venetian Concerning the Kingdoms and Marvels of the East, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Book of Sir Marco Polo the Venetian Concerning the Kingdoms and Marvels of the East, Volume 1. By Rusticello da Pisa. Translated by Henry Yule. Introductory Notices Part 5 Digression Concerning the War Galleys of the Mediterranean States in the Middle Ages And before entering on this new phase of the Traveler's Biography, it may not be without interest that we say something regarding the equipment of those galleys which are so prominent in the medieval history of the Mediterranean. Eschewing that Serbonian bog, where armies whole have sunk, of books and commentators, the theory of classification of the biremes and triremes of the ancients, we can at least assert on secure grounds that in medieval armament, up to this middle of the sixteenth century or thereabouts, the characteristic distinction of galleys of different calibers, so far as such differences existed, was based on the number of rowers that sat on one bench pulling each his separate oar, but through one portella or rowlock port and to the classes of galleys so distinguished the italians of the later middle age at least did certainly apply rightly or wrongly the classical terms of bireme trireme and quinquireme in the sense of galleys having two men and two oars to a bench three men and three oars to a bench and five men and five oars to a bench that this was the medieval arrangement is very certain from the details afforded by marino sanudo the elder confirmed by later writers and by works of art previous to twelve ninety sanudo tells us almost all the galleys that went to the levant had but two oars and men to a bench but as it had been found that three oars and men to a bench could be employed with great advantage after that date nearly all galleries adopted this arrangement which was called ai tassoroli moreover experiments made by the venetians in thirteen sixteen had shown that four rowers to a bench could be employed still more advantageously and where the galleys could be used on inland waters and could be made more bulky sanudo would even recommend five to a bench or have gangs of rowers on two decks with either three or four men to the bench on each deck this system of grouping oars and putting only one man to an oar continued down to the sixteenth century during the first half of which came in the more modern system of using great oars, equally spaced, and requiring from four to seven men each to ply them, in the manner which endured till late in the last century, when galleys became altogether obsolete. Captain Pantero Pantera, the author of a work on naval tactics, says he had heard from veterans, who had commanded galleys equipped in the antiquated fashion, that three men to a bench with separate oars answered better than three men to one great oar but four men to one great oar he says were certainly more efficient than four men with separate oars the new-fashioned great oars he tells us were styled remi di scalocchico the old grouped roars remi a sensile terms of etymology which i cannot explain it may be doubted whether the four-banked and five-banked galleys, of which Marino Sanudo speaks, really then came into practical use. A great five-banked galley on this system, built in 1529 in the Venice Arsenal by Vettor Fausto, was the subject of so much talk and excitement that it must evidently have been something quite new and unheard of. 
So late as 1567, indeed, the King of Spain built at Barcelona a galley of thirty-six benches to the side, and seven men to the bench, with a separate oar to each in the old fashion, but it proved a failure. Down to the introduction of the great oars, the usual system appears to have been three oars to a bench for the larger galleys and two oars for the lighter ones. The fuste, or lighter galleys of the Venetians, even to about the middle of the sixteenth century, had their oars in pairs from stern to the mast, and single oars only from the mast forward. Returning then to the three-banked and two-banked galleys of the latter part of the thirteenth century, the number of benches on each side seems to have run from twenty-five to twenty-eight, at least as I interpret Sanudo's calculations. The hundred-oared vessels often mentioned, example by Muntaner, page 419, were probably two-banked vessels with twenty-five benches to a side. The galleys were very narrow, only fifteen and a half feet in beam. But to give room for the play of oars and the passage of the fighting men, etc., this width was largely augmented by an operetta morta, or outrigger deck, projecting much beyond the ship's sides and supported by timber brackets. I do not find it stated how this projection was in the medieval galleys, but in those of the seventeenth century it was on each side as much as two-ninths of the true beam and if it was as great in the thirteenth-century galleys, the total width between the false gunnels would be about twenty-four and a quarter feet. In the center line of the deck ran, the whole length of the vessel, a raised gangway, called the corsia, for passage clear of the oars. The benches were arranged as in this diagram. The part of the bench next to the gunnel was at right angles to it, but the other two-thirds of the bench were thrown forward obliquely. A, B, c indicate the position of the three rowers the shortest oar a was called the torlicio the middle one the posticio the long oar c piamero i do not find any information as to how the oars worked on the gunnels the siena fresco appears to show them attached by loops and pins which is the usual practice in boats of the mediterranean now in the cut from d tintoretto the groups of oars protrude through regular ports in the bulwarks, but this probably represents the use of a later day. In any case, the oars of each bench must have worked in very close proximity. Sanudo states the length of the galleys of this time, 1300 to 1320, as 117 feet. This was doubtless length of keel, for that is specified, da roda a roda. In other Venetian measurements, but the whole oar space could scarcely have been so much, and with twenty-eight benches to a side there could not have been more than four feet gunnel space to each bench. And as one of the objects of the grouping oars was to allow room between the benches for the action of crossbowmen, etc., it is plain that the rowlock space for the three oars must have been very much compressed. The rowers were divided into three classes with graduated pay. The highest class, who pulled the poop or stroke oars, were called portolati. Those at the bow, called prodieri, formed the second class. Some elucidation of the arrangements that we have tried to describe will be found in our cuts. That at page 35 is from a drawing, by the aid of a very imperfect photograph, of part of one of the frescoes of Spinello Artini in the municipal palace at Siena representing a victory of the venetians over the emperor frederick barbarossa's fleet commanded by his son otho in eleven seventy six but no doubt the galleys and etc 
are of the artist's own age, the middle of the fourteenth century. In this we see plainly the projecting opera morta, and the rowers sitting two to a bench, each with his oar, for these are two banked. We can also discern the Latin rudder on the quarter. See this volume, page 119. In a picture in the Uffizi at Florence, of about the same date, by Pietro Larato, it is in the corridor near the entrance. May be seen a small figure of a galley with oars also very distinctly coupled. Cassoni has engraved, after Cristoforo Canale, a pictorial plan of a Venetian trireme of the 16th century, which shows the arrangement of the oars and triplets very plainly. The following cut has been sketched from an engraving of a picture by Domencio Tintoretto in Doge's palace, representing, I believe, the same action, real or imaginary, as Spinello's fresco, but with the costume and construction of a later date. It shows, however, very plainly the projecting opera morta, and the arrangement of the oars and fours, issuing through row ports and high bulwarks. Midship in the medieval galley, a castle was erected, of the width of the ship, and some twenty feet in length, its platform being elevated sufficiently to allow a free passage under it and over the benches. At the bow was the battery, consisting of mangonels, see volume 2, page 161, and great crossbows with winding gear, whilst there were shot ports for smaller crossbows along the gunnels in the intervals between the benches. Some of the larger galleys had openings to admit horses at the stern, which were closed and cocked for the voyage, being under water when the vessel was at sea. It seems to have been a very usual piece of tactics, in attacking as well as in a waiting attack, to connect a large number of galleys by hawsers, and sometimes also to link the oars together, so as to render it difficult for the enemy to break the line or run aboard. We find this practiced by the Genoese on the defensive at the Battle of Aias, infra, page 43, and it is constantly resorted to by the Catalans in the battles described by Ramon de Muntaner. Sanudo says the toil of rowing in the galleys was excessive, almost unendurable, yet it seems to have been performed by freely enlisted men, and therefore it was probably less severe than that of the great oared galleys of more recent times, which it was found impracticable to work by free enlistment, or otherwise than by slaves under the most cruel driving. I am not well enough read to say that war galleys were never rowed by slaves in the Middle Ages, but the only doubtful allusion to such a class that I have met with is in one passage of Muntaner, where he says, describing the Neapolitan and Catalan fleets drawing together for action, that the gangs of the galleys had to toil like four cats. Indeed, as regards Venice at least, convict rowers are stated to have been first introduced in 1549, previous to which the gangs were of galeotti a soldati. We have already mentioned that Sanudo requires for his three-banked galley a ship's company of 250 men. They are distributed as follows. Comito, or master, one. Quartermasters, eight. Carpenters, two. Cockers, two. In charge of stores and arms, four. Orderlies, two. Cook, one. Arblasteers, fifty. Rowers, 180, 250 total. This does not include the soprocomito, or gentleman commander, who is expected to be valens homo et probus, a soldier and a gentleman fit to be consulted on occasion by the captain-general. In the Venetian fleet he was generally a noble. The aggregate pay of such a crew, not including the soprocomito, amounted monthly to 60 lire de grossi, 
or 600 florins, equivalent to 280 lira at modern gold value, and the cost for a year to nearly 3,160 lira, exclusive to the victualling of the vessel and the pay of the gentleman commander. The build or purchase of a galley complete is estimated by the same author at 15,000 florins, or 7,012 lira. We see that war cost a good deal in money even then. Beside the ship's own complement, Sanudo gives an estimate for the general staff of a fleet of sixty galleys. This consists of a captain-general, two vice-admirals, and the following. Six probi homines, or gentlemen of character, forming a council to the captain-general. Four commissaries of stores. Two commissaries over the arms. Three physicians. Three surgeons five master engineers and carpenters, fifteen master smiths, twelve master fletchers, five cuirassmen and helmet makers, fifteen oar makers and shaft makers, ten stone cutters for stone shot, ten master arbalist makers, twenty musicians, twenty orderlies, etc. The musicians formed an important part of the equipment. Sanudo says that in going into action every vessel should make the greatest possible display of colors, Gonfalons and broad banners should float from stern to stern, and gay pennons all along the bulwarks. Whilst it was impossible to have too much of noisy music, of pipes, trumpets, kettle-drums, and what not, to put heart into the crew and strike fear into the enemy. So Joinville, in a glorious passage, describes the galley of his kinsman, the Count of Jaffa, at the landing of St. Louis in Egypt. The galley made the most gallant figure of them all, for it was painted all over, above water and below, with scutcheons of the Count's arms, the field of which was oar with a cross patee gules. He had a good three hundred rowers in his galley, and every man of them had a target blazoned with his arms in beaten gold. And, as they came on, the galley looked to be some flying creature, with such spirit did the rowers spin it along or rather with the rustle of its flags, and the roar of its nacares and drums and saracen horns, you might have taken it for a rushing bolt of heaven. The galleys, which were very low in the water, could not keep the sea in rough weather, and in winter they never willingly kept the sea at night, however fair the weather might be. Yet Sanudo mentions that he had been with armed galleys to slies in Flanders. I will mention two more particulars before concluding this digression. When captured, galleys were towed into port, it was stern foremost, and with their colors dragging on the surface of the sea. And the custom of saluting at sunset, probably by music, was in vogue on board the galleys of the thirteenth century. We shall now sketch the circumstances that led to the appearance of our traveler in the command of a war galley. End of Section 5